What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, November 12th. Wherever you are, I hope uh, I hope you guys are doing well, staying warm. Here in Winnipeg, we got literally three feet of snow outside. It is madness. Uh, had the craziest blizzard I've seen in like three years over the last couple of days. Um, it's officially the holiday season, I guess. Um, you know, that's that's kind of rings in the holiday season for me. Personally, I don't mind the snow as long as I don't got to go outside or do anything in it. Um, as I'm sitting by the window, having a nice beverage, um, I'm, I'm good, but hopefully it's, it's nice and warm wherever you guys are. Uh, also, I hope you guys got a chance to tune into the episode I released today with a good friend of mine, the one and only George Firacan. We, uh, talked about how to turn the lights on data. So we had a great conversation all about, um, data governance and a bunch of cool stuff from his course. Uh, hopefully you get a chance to tune in. Uh, just what's coming up in a couple of weeks. I've got uh, over the next couple of weeks, I've got Steve uh, Cardinale, uh, turning ideas into gold, then Karush Alizada. We're going to be talking about NLP and philosophy. He's got the philosophy data project. So that's pretty cool. Hopefully, you guys have been enjoying the uh, medium publications that I've just been dropping all week for you guys. Uh, definitely let me know what you guys have been thinking of those uh, uh, written pieces if you enjoy them. Let me know. Uh, if you don't enjoy them, let me know. Um, shout out to everybody in the room. What's up, Vin, Serge, Eric, Mark, Matt, Jennifer. It's been so long, Jennifer. I haven't seen you in a very long time. And Russell as well. Uh, if you guys got questions on anything whatsoever, please go ahead and drop it right there in the chat. I will be happy to uh, to take your questions. Also, big thanks to Avery for taking over last week, um, doing the MC duties for me. I really appreciate that. Avery, thank you very much. Hopefully you guys enjoyed hanging out with Avery. Um, so yeah, man, let's go, let's get it going. So uh I guess I guess I, I released a piece today called uh, the data science mindset. So well it wasn't called the data science mindset. It says you might know data science, but you don't think like a data scientist. Um and the whole piece was kind of me laying out the the data science mindset, which I said is like this three-piece thing engineer, business person, and scientist. So I'm wondering, what does it mean to you to think like a data scientist? What does it mean to you to think like a data scientist? Let's kick it off with uh, with Serge, and let's go to uh, Vin as well. Also, big congratulations uh, to, to Mark as well. Yeah, I've uh, definitely got to shout that out. Mark uh, got promoted to senior data scientist up at Humu. Uh, so huge round of applause for our friend Mark, man. That's uh, That's amazing. Um, so we'll get to Mark on, uh, on, on some pointers on what it took to, uh, to level up like that. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to get into that. Uh, let's, let's start the conversation first, um, with this opening question, what does it mean to think like a data scientist? Then we'll get into the question here, uh, from Matt Diamond talking about, uh, Jupyter notebooks to non-technical users. Uh, and then we'll move into, uh, into some questions from Mark. Let's kick it off, Serge, go for it. I, um, I think uh, uh, there is no data science without science. I think that's, that's probably to me like the key differentiator between being a data analyst and a data scientist. I mean, uh, data analysts could have engineering chills and know a lot about the business, but a data science must be a skeptic. In other words, not trust the data, not even trust the intentions behind the data or the data generation process use, um, I think, interpretation, experimentation, statistics are, are all very important in, in disentangling all the different things that come to make the data and, and, in, and what the data represents in the real world. And so I, I basically think, although it's very valid to see it as a Venn diagram where you have all these different things that are needed, I think that's a differentiator in data walk design. Walk us through that real quick at just like a high level. What does it mean to run an experiment in, in machine learning? Does that simply mean, okay, I've got a problem statement, I've got data, I've got a, a suite of candidate algorithms that I wish to test on this data, and I want to put forth this hypothesis that that I could actually model this data generating process, and then here are my, my you know, different models, and do I compare whether I get a good MSc or not a good MSc, you know what I mean? Like, what, what does that look like in, in data science? Well, it, it's it's not even 
it's even before it gets to the modeling process. You can do that through modeling. Sometimes there's there's things you don't understand and you uh, you don't understand them until you model them. And sometimes through unsupervised methods, you can learn a lot of things as well. In my uh, my work with with weather data, I find sometimes through clusters, I find okay, well, this whoever put this data here, it doesn't belong here. You know, there must be because it's just so far off everything else. You know, there's no way like the the plant would have been planted here here. You know, the crop would have you know things like that. I I tend to find that way. But if I were just trusting the data and just running it as you know, anything, I would end up with a certain percentage that would be poor quality simply because of that. And so I have to put the science first and try to run uh, uh, some scenarios. And, and, and sometimes I don't even know what those hypotheses are to like, explore the data enough. Or maybe if I didn't explore it enough, I go through the modeling exercise and I realize I have poor results and, and then I have to trace it back, you know, to, oh, what, what misclassified and why? Thank you very much. Hopefully you guys uh, took a lot out of that. That's one that you might want to run back on repeat search. Thank you. Uh, actually, let's, let's go to, uh, before I get to Vin, let's go to Vivian on this. Vivian, I don't know if you heard the opening question, but I'm going to repeat it for you. It is, what does it mean to think like a data scientist? This is uh, coming on the heels of a, a, a blog post that published today, which was, uh, uh, so you know about data science, but you don't think like a data scientist. So I'm just curious, what does it mean to you to think like a data scientist? Now I wish that I'd read that blog post already. I got the notification on my phone actually to read it, but I haven't read it yet. So now I wish I had. Um, can I not go next? I, yeah, I feel yeah. like I need to think about this actually. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Vin and and then uh, after Vin maybe Eric and then we'll go to Vivian. Then we'll go to Mark because I like this twist that uh, that Eric had had put on the question. Uh, what does it mean to think like a senior data scientist? I think that is what I want to ask uh, Mark. Uh, so let's go to, to Vin, Eric, Vivian, then Mark. Thinking like a data scientist means a lot of different stuff now because every different domain has like a different flavor of data science, it feels like. We all do a lot of the same stuff. We all use some of the same core tools. Uh, but thinking like a data scientist now means understanding your domain. And I think we forget that in a lot of cases, that, that the domain knowledge that other people have around you, the subject matter experts, those people help you think like a data scientist who can build something for that part of the business or for that particular use case. And so I think Surge just killed it. So I got like literally nothing else to talk about from a, you know, from a traditionalist data scientist, data scientist standpoint. But I think the one thing we often overlook is thinking like a domain expert, thinking like a customer or a business owner or some stakeholder or senior leader whose job's on the line. I mean, just there's so many different pairs of the shoes you can put yourself in to understand the little things that they're not telling you about the project or to figure out what questions maybe you could ask or how you use all the tools that you have to build something that's that meets a need and oftentimes meets multiple needs. So that's, I think, thinking like a data scientist now, especially as we start supporting different parts of the business and more complex use cases, and we're starting to touch customers, it means thinking not just like ourselves, but walking outside of the, walking outside of the machine learning team. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to, to Eric, and then uh, after Eric, we'll go Vivian, then, then Mark. Yeah, I think my answer is probably going to be supremely unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying to me too. So I'm like trying to think about it. I'm like, okay, what do I do that's different from like, say the people around me? And one of the things I thought of was like, well, we'll just like ask an absurd amount of a certain number of questions, you know? And like, and I'm like, well, that's, that's good. And I think, well, actually like I have a GM who asks me all the questions I haven't thought of yet. It drives me nuts because I didn't think of that question, you know? So I'm like, maybe it's not just questions or maybe it's the tools that I use or something, but like, what does it mean to think like a data scientist? Doesn't mean to like just use a tool you know, that other people don't use. And so as I, I, I'm like trying to compare myself to people around me who don't do what I do to figure out what the difference is. And really like just the main thing I keep just coming back to is like, we all, we all try and think, we all try and think similarly. We all try and think about 
problems and break them down into little pieces and how's it going to affect the customers or the bottom line or whatever. And really, because every organization is so different, I think that thinking like a data scientist means like all those things, but just knowing how to apply them to the tools that you have that the person who works on the product team doesn't have. Just like they know how to apply their tools in a way that I don't know how to do and I'm not going to learn how to do. Um, so I, I think it's super, I think it's really organizational specific. Eric, thanks so much. Uh, let's go to, to Vivian. Um, something that I was thinking about that um, is sort of unique about my role compared to the other people around me is that I feel like I'm sort of a connector between some other roles, like the the product manager and like the data engineer or something like that. Like I'm the person that sort of like can connect all these people together. You know, the product manager really wants to like use data, but doesn't have the right know-how to dig into it. The data engineer has like really, um, you know, specific ex expertise of how to like get the, the data pipeline up and going and everything. And then I feel like I kind of like, and the connector piece of like how to actually like get this data and then like make it meaningful for a product kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that's what I thought of just when everybody was talking. I agree with everybody else yeah. though, but that was kind of like the piece I wanted to add. Thank you, Vivian. And Vivian, can you talk to us about the metaverse at some point in the conversation as uh, I would like to, like to know what Facebook has planned for that? If, okay. you know, I I don't know what Facebook has planned for that. I feel yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's go to let's go to Mark. Mark, uh, wait, yeah, yeah. Let's let's first go to Mark uh, about you know what it means to think like a senior data scientist. Yeah. Um, thanks everyone for for the shout out too. I really appreciate that. And uh, well, first I want to answer like what I think the main thing that came to mind when like thinking like a data scientist that I think hasn't been mentioned yet, but the role of trust as like your main social currency within an organization. And I've actually one of my first data science roles. I just, I accidentally presented like completely wrong numbers and I lost the trust of a lot of stakeholders and it took me months <laughs> to build that back up. And so like, you know, everyone wants to be trusted, but, like as a data professional, like how can you create processes and like, define your like assumptions and test those out. So even if you are wrong, it's like, well, I documented this process and like, this is how we got to that and this is how we're gonna fix it, right? Um, but for the most part, you should get like right answers uh, for things, but we're dealing with a lot of ambiguity. And so that like, that that sting really stuck with me of like, all right, how do I create processes so that I trust my results and I can share that trust with others? Um, so like, once I get that down, so going to the next stage is like, how do I think like a, a senior data scientist? Um, and I think the the main thing uh, for that is, you know, you you move away from like project focus to like business focus as a whole. And so you start thinking like, how does your work fit within, um, within an entire org and drive the needle forward? And specifically, it's like, you can do so much as a data scientist is what you choose that's gonna be most impactful. But then another piece that took me a while to pick up was what's the right time to engage in this? Because there's, especially in a startup, there's so many things that to reprioritize. So like learning how to prioritize what's the correct thing to engage on um, was really critical for that. And then from there, you know, it's one thing to say like, I have this idea and this is the right time to do it, but then be able to execute on it. So, um, you know, non-senior data science, they may bring this idea to the manager and the manager may be able to like pick up like, hey, here's all these pieces, let me bring this all together. There you go, here's this project. But as a senior data scientist, you know, I'm the one going out and building up those relationships. I'm selling this idea and getting buy-in. And I'm more so looping in my managers to know the progress. And so they can step in just in case they're like, hey, actually, there's this like change in the business here, right? And so combining that ability to identify like where are the key business things that are moving forward, what's the right timing for it, and then to be able to execute and get the people around you to, to deliver on it. Um, pretty self kind of, uh, not self-motivated, but uh, basically push forward, execute um, and driven by yourself. You know, you're, you're definitely gonna collaborate a lot of people, but like uh, taking lead on, on that project, I think that's the key kind of differentiator for me that I've noticed between 
when I first started as data science to like my work now. And big shout out to Ben's uh, data. <laughs> I, I mention it all the time, but his, his uh, workshop was really good because yeah. the, the figuring out what to, to work on uh, was like, that's what I learned through that workshop. Yeah, yeah, that was a great, great workshop. I was in that, that same session with you, Mark. Uh, Vin, whenever you are doing that next time, please do let us know. I'll be sure to uh, to to link out to that. It is well worth uh, your your time if you're trying to get to that next level in your career. Mark, when like, I want to talk real quick about that that instinct to talk about where you kind of lost trust by presenting the wrong numbers. Like, what is the process look like? First of all, you present the wrong numbers. It probably feels shitty. How did you? Yeah. Personally, like, how did you respond to that? How did you take that? And then how, what was like the process to gain the trust back from your colleagues? Oh man, that, that was, that was a rough time. <laughs> that, that, that definitely sucked. Um, to give context, I was working with ophthalmology data. So eyes, um, and essentially, you know, you're trying to get user counts of people who present this disease. But something that's a weird quirk with ophthalmology data is like, is it the left eye or the right eye? <laughs> so that completely messes up your counts because it can either be one eye, two eyes, or one other eye. And so I didn't account for that because there's this new domain for me and all my numbers are wrong, right? And so uh, it was for a major client and the salesperson presented it <laughs> for a large contract. And uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, you live and learn. but essentially um you know the way i built that back up was i got really on it for my analysis plans and really saying like okay i'm actually forget trying to go straight into coding because i was like fast paced let me move as quickly as possible taking a step back and like really like thinking through like this is how i'm going to solve this and then going to the stakeholder and be like this is my thought process you know and this point here here and here i can see your domain expertise being really helpful do you think my assumptions are great here? And by documenting that and then also getting buy-in from the stakeholder and the requester, that instantly builds in a lot of trust uh, for that. And so kind of repeating that process. And so it, it went from like, oh yeah, wow, Mark, Mark totally messed up that, <laughs> that eye count thing to slowly shifting towards like, oh wow, Mark's really thorough. And Mark really brought me along this journey to see how, how he got those numbers uh, for us. Um, and so that that was that was a long process. But here's the thing: I didn't win everyone back. There were some people who were like, "Oh yeah, Mark's great." Other people were like, they were stuck with that impression of me for a while. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of think back to that now, like if there's like one bit of advice that you can give the the uh, the Mark of the past before he looked at that data to do it more carefully, like what would that what would that be? Um, I think the the main thing would be. Um, the slow down, slow down. That, I was so like hungry to be like, oh, I need to finish things quick, right? Because that was my mindset when I first started was like, you know, when you're very entry level and before data science, I was in operation. So it was a matter of like, how quickly can you get things done? Like how many boxes and tickets can you complete, right? And going to data science is a completely different mindset. It's like, what's the quality <laughs> and value it can bring? Like if I bring, you know, 10 crappy things, that's going to do nothing compared to like one amazing, like value changing thing. Right. And so I brought that old mindset into the job and that was just the wrong approach. And so being able to slow down um, and really think through, not just like think through why I'm coding, but like really think through the assumptions. One saves a lot of time in the long run, but also like I have this document that's used as an asset. (laughs) to like kind of save my ass, but also like, I really don't need to save my ass because I thought through it so much and uh, the stakeholder feels comfortable because I put in so much effort up front. Mark, thank you very much. Uh, before we move on to the next question, just a couple of comments here from Russell. Russell says, rule number one, disconnect ego, opinion, and emotion from all considerations in data science. Uh, then Mark followed up with, uh, strong held assumptions and gut feelings, how dare you? Uh, Russell also says, um, here that it can be mortifying, mortif- mortifyingly painful to present inaccurate data, but owning the responsibility for the mistake and the corrective action, plus making sure all stakeholders know when the correction is implemented can go a long way to regaining any lost trust. Uh, Russell, thank you so much for sharing that. Also, shout out to uh, 
Shantana is, is, is in the building. Shantana, Dr. Dooley, thank you so much for coming back. Good to see you again. Uh, also, shout out to Christine and uh, Ellen. Good to see you guys here. If you guys have any questions, please let us know. If you guys got questions in, uh, in, in here in general, let me know. Just drop it right there in the chat or send me a, a private message on LinkedIn. If you guys have questions, watch on LinkedIn. Please let us know as well. I'm happy to take your questions. Uh, let's go to Matt Diamond's question next. Hey guys, so thanks, thanks Arm. And the question I have is how to get people who have used Excel for decades uh, with a lot of vested interest in the tool, it's familiar interface, I mean, they're, they're comfortable with it, but it just doesn't do the job that I need it to do and I'd say my organization needs it to do, but there's such a lack of familiarity with the ins and outs of data science that I'm, I'm stuck in a hard place getting people to, taking the horse to water proverbially, but getting him to drink has been a challenge. I, I can imagine that someone here is, has faced something like that. I just, I'd love to learn how to get people to, to understand what, what Jupiter can do and the types of, of data viz it can, it can pull off without overly intimidating people into writing code in Jupyter notebooks. Anything along those lines would be super helpful. Yeah, definitely. I want to. I'll start off with Vin for this question. Then after Vin, go to uh, go to go to Mark. But just one tool right off the bat that might uh, be worth looking into is um, uh, Nas.ai Notebook as a Service.ai. That's Jeremy Jeremy Revenal's project, and it's meant uh, as a way to just make it really easy to communicate what you're trying to communicate to non-technical people. So that's a tool worth checking out. Jeremy, uh, thanks for creating that awesome tool. I also know Jeremy just had a baby a couple of weeks ago. So uh, congrats to you, Jeremy. Uh, let's go to uh, Vin Vashista, then uh, we'll go to Mark. And then uh, if anybody else wants to jump in here, Serge, uh, Vivian, Eric, Jennifer, anyone, uh, just let me know, just like uh, like raise the hand on the, uh, on the reaction thing and I'll add you to you. Excel is kind of like a cult. So you're in, you're in a really, really tough spot. Like the normal generic advice that I give doesn't work for some stuff. Like Excel is one of those niche areas. It's like trying to get somebody that codes in C++ to acknowledge other languages exist because it, it truly is. There's like this cultish devotion to it. And so that's really what you have to do is somehow get the people out of that cult mindset. It's not so much like they're scared of other tools. It's that they love Excel so much that there's this irrationality around it. And, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter how cool the alternative is that you show them, you know, they, they really have to have some sort of crazy, huge pain to break out of that group think. Yeah, I mean, the pain is, it's survival, I'd, I'd argue. I mean, the, the industry is not going to be competitive. I mean, our, our position in the industry will not be competitive because there are other firms using Matplotlib and getting better results from it. But there, there seems to be, I don't know if it's, it's as much of a, I mean, it's, it's the sense of fear and a clinging to it. It's, it's just trying to, to, uh, show that there is an alternative out there, but there there's hasn't been an infrastructure put in place and there hasn't been a user-friendly explanation of what it can do uh, without delving into the technical details, which is fine. I'm, I'm happy to be that ambassador, but um, getting there is, it's more of a behavioral science than anything. I, I would imagine I'm, I'm completely empathetic to that, but uh, I'm, just, I'm sure there are things that I don't know. and I'd, I'd love to hear what, what, other people have done and this is super helpful man um yeah it's it's basic deprogramming and that's the you know the first piece of deprogramming is you can't call out the person who's stuck in the cult yeah for being wrong or stupid or crazy or anything like that you almost have to just be there and go yeah yeah no excel is amazing but you know and you get enough of those, you knows, and you open up enough opportunities for conversation. Someone is finally going to walk through that door, but the problem is you want it to happen fast and it doesn't the way that it feels like you're going to get fast results is to show how wrong and how lacking and how bad Excel is. Mm -hmm. And you can't really do it. They have to come to their own pain. They have to see it. 
And all you can do is kind of provide evidence and facts to support using Jupiter or, you know, if you can find some intermediary, some like gateway tool that'll get yeah. you there. That's another good technique. Like, like I said, this is really Excel's cult-like and you have oh, for to sure. program people. Oh and my that's, God. Yeah. You know, and that's really step one is just starting conversations where they can ask some questions and not feel like Excel's terrible, but feel like maybe there's something that can get bolted on top of Excel. And then you rapidly wean them off of, you know, what, what's going to continually pull them back. And that's the other yeah. problem with Excel is it gets you so comfortable that if you ever get out of your comfort zone in a notebook, it, it's like 15 seconds, you're back to Excel. And no matter how many hours it takes you to do something that would take you 10 minutes of Googling to figure out, yeah. they'll go right back. Yeah. I mean, luckily I'm in a position where if, uh, my team just starts running over uh, with Jupyter Notebook and using data science day in and day out, where we're absolutely crushing other teams and, and other organizations. I'm, I, as callous as this sounds, I'm willing to let those who want to cling to Excel, cling to Excel and through their convictions. That's I don't want, I want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem in my organization. And thankfully I've found like-minded people who are willing to support the effort. I, I just know that I'm going to face a ton of resistance along the way, but anything to, to handicap that is super helpful. So thank man. Thanks for voicing this, Ben. This is, it's, it's going to mentally handicap things. Only Dave Langer was here to hear all this. I wonder what, what Dave Langer would say. <laughs> Dave, if you're listening, you know, this is your opportunity to come in. And Hit me up on LinkedIn, Dave. Let's pick up for Excel. Uh, let's go to uh, Mark after this. Uh, let's go to Mark. Then after Mark, we'll go to Russell and Serge. By the way, can we just acknowledge how cool that silver streak of hair and Vin's hair is right there? That is amazing. I wish I had that going on instead. I'm just, I'm going bald. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Mark, and then after Mark, we'll go to Russell and then Serge. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> uh, I have not implemented this. So take that with a grain of salt. I'm more gotcha. so pulling different contextual things and bringing it together to brainstorm with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just want to caveat with that. Um, but again, I, I talk about this all the time. I, I talk about the STARS framework, um, and I post a link from an HBR article that goes into it. But specifically, STARS stands, stands for Startup, Turnaround, Accelerated Growth, Realignment, and Sustained Success. And specifically, you're in realignment based on what I'm hearing is that yeah. you've had some success, it's growing, there's like set in their ways, but you see there's not a problem today, but there would definitely be a big problem in the future um, if you maintain this. And so you need to realign the ship, right? And so that requires a different set of strategy and influence uh, as compared to like, if the ship was going down and burning, they'll be like, oh yeah, whatever, whatever's a great idea, like we need to fix something yeah. now. Right. But things are working now. So you need to really figure out a way to influence um, to, to, to make that happen. Um, and, you know, for me, the way I think about it is, you know, within an organization, think about like entrepreneurship, innovating within your, your organization is I, I view myself as a startup of one. Maybe I'm a team as a startup within, within this. And all my colleagues are my market <laughs> and I'm trying to capture this market and sell to them. And so for me, my mindset would be like, if I was in a situation, I'm like, okay, who are the champions? Who are the key people that are going to like, do I need to influence and get them on the team on board for them to influence other people? Right. So instead of me trying to be like, let me convince everyone. Right. I want to go identify, well, who's going to have the most like power to make a decision to like convince people be like, actually we're, this is our new OKR. We're using Jupyter Notebooks for like 30% of our projects, something like that, right? <clears throat> and so my effort would be focused on like, who are those key people to sell to? Um, and then again, thing about selling is, you know, you, you want to focus on what's the problem that's being solved for them and how your proposed solution fills that need so perfectly for them. And so it's less about like, well, don't you obviously see this is way better than Excel? Um, you need to understand their pain points and really deeply understand like, okay, um, you know, uh, they really love Excel, but when talking to them, you know, say like, well, what, what doesn't work for you for Excel sometimes, you know, what's something that's taking really long that you can really try to try to, uh, accelerate. Right. So for example, I'm thinking top of my head, um, if you're ever working with Excel data and maybe you have like, uh, I know you work in finance. I don't know. I don't know any finance things, but like, uh, say for instance, it's like, 
and we'd say pricing data in Excel. We could find a web scraping tool and we could write a, a Python script, automate a, a, a pricing check four times a month as opposed to getting some, some Excel monkey to manually check a web page, manually put the pricing data into Excel and having that file stored locally. Like that's, that's what I'm dealing with. So I would, I would argue think even simpler at first, because again, like you're, you're already at the promised land, right? You, you, you already see it, but other people don't yeah. see it, right? Mm-hmm. And so like for me, like what I'm thinking about is like something as simple as like when you have like text data, so say for like organization name and you have this whole, whole Excel file, it's so painful to manually clean that throughout that. And so you can say like, hey, you know, you're totally using Excel. You fixed that column. It took you like three hours. What if I showed you a way to do it? This one cell in notebook, that'll take you like two minutes, right? Um, well, maybe, maybe take you longer <laughs> to code it, but to run it, yeah, it'll yeah. take you a few minutes, right? right? And then you're like, well, also I can show you how to download into CSC so you can put it back into Excel, Big right? Yeah. And so like you solve this one pain point and you get them hooked. And from there you can build build from there. Again, just brainstorming, but like that's the framework I'm thinking about of like how do I navigate and like get something adopted. Um, I feel like Greg would have probably have great insights too yeah, on like how to how yeah, to get sorry, something I'm, adopted. I'm, I'm, yeah, Greg, I see your your chat, and guys, I'm all responding in the chat. This is all super helpful, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go to uh, let's go to Russell, and then and then Serge. Uh, by the way, if anybody else has questions, please do let me know either in the comment section on LinkedIn, on YouTube. If you're in the chat here, uh, let me know if you got questions. And also shout out Christine, Ellen. Jonathan, I see you guys here. Good to see you. Uh, let me know if you guys got a question. Russell, go for it. Evening all. Um, so Excel, yeah, I, I think one of the main things to say about Excel is it's been the uh, the main tool on the market for some, what, 30, 30 plus years. So it's, it's almost ubiquitous throughout most organizations, general organizations, not, not data science. Uh, so everybody's had it normally bundled on their laptop, so it's been there for you, so everyone's had to play with it. So it's really kind of ingrained as uh, a first line of defense for anything. So I think that's why it's a um, it's almost a comfort blanket for people. The way I approach trying to wean people away from Excel uh, is to point out its, its weaknesses, because it has some strengths. And uh, again, as you said, Harpreet, uh, it would be nice if Dave Langer was here to, to be able to um, uh, really go on about those. But the, the weaknesses, as I see them, are uh, stability and fidelity of data in it and the propensity for breaking or corruption and fragmenting. Okay, so uh, recent enterprise, um, Office 365, has helped so you can have a single version saved on SharePoint and share it rather than having a version of a file that's in um, copied, saved as, and emailed around a hundred times, so you end up with a hundred different versions of the same file and version history. It's very difficult to uh, to work out. So, so if we assume that most of the people you're talking to have got that enterprise level, um, so that they can share a single file, the weaknesses are still, even if you protect that file, it's still open to having inadvertently. Um, uh, protected cells overwritten because Excel is not very good at keeping a protected cell protected. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, are, are experts on Excel, but if you have a protected column and you do an array paste that goes from either side of that column, it'll actually paste over a protected um, cell. So it's really irritating in that way. So try to point out the weaknesses of it and then really upsell the the, um, the complementary strengths of whatever you want to propose as a solution. So be that say uh, and again if, if Dave Langer was here you know you talk about R um, as being able to to do some of that and push it back out to Excel Python can do the same thing I do a lot of work also with Power BI which is is kind of a, a successor to Excel at least from the Power Pivot and Power Query plus you know other stuff so I try to wean people off Excel to the next best solution that still has a, a tangible connection to it and try and move them off. Try, as I say, wean them um, in time. Don't just cold circuit them. Don't say, right, Excel's rubbish. You need to do this now. Let them find the better solutions and um, yeah, coach them to move away from it rather than order them to move away from it. And even then, I think as Vin was saying, you know, it's, it's a comfort blanket. As soon as something doesn't work the way you want to, 
you go straight back to Excel. And one of the most common questions I get from people that are, are not uh, really comfortable with non-Excel solutions is, oh, yeah, that, that, that data output, that's amazing. How did you do that? Can I export that to Excel and have a play with it? So it's, it's, Excel is just such a hard habit to break. Uh, I don't think you're going to do it in days or weeks or even months. It's going to take a long, long time. But just keep pushing those iterative improvements, and eventually we can move away. But try and sell them as a supplement to Excel rather than a replacement to Excel. Just a, a certain bit of satisfaction you get, like when you're actually like manipulating the data yourself. Like it's one thing to look at it in a static data frame where you can't really, you know, get down and dirty with it. So I could see where where some people are reluctant to. Uh, to, to get rid of it. Well, you know, the, have a play with that. The, the cynic in me, Harpreet, um, most people want the data exports to Excel. So if they don't like a number or if they disagree with a number, they can just over overwrite the number. You know, I mean, that's what you don't want in yeah. data. That's the whole reason to move away. But that's the reason people want it. Oh, I can't, I can't show my manager that number. Let me just change it. I, that goes on more than I think anyone would care to admit. Uh, and that's the biggest reason to move away from Excel. Thank you very much, Russell. Uh, so let's go to Serge next, uh, and then Costeb and Eric. If you guys uh, want to talk on this topic, we'll we'll go to uh, Costeb and then Eric next, and after that, we'll jump into Greg's question. Uh, you are muted, Serge. I keep doing that. Ru Russell just hit the nail on the head. I I was um, going to talk about that a bit more, but uh, yeah, he he beat me to it. Yeah, like I think. Uh, the gateway drug to something better than Excel is definitely BI tools. Um, so as soon as they see what you can do with BI tools, like Power BI or like Tableau, they'll, they won't want to use Excel. Plus, it will allow them to use even more data that they can already if they haven't reached that limitation. Uh, better plots, uh, nicer looking too. Um, and and uh, it has uh, a cleaner user interface, although they might feel a bit lost uh, without you know that kind of sheet first approach. Um, they also you know you could point them to Alteryx or something like that as well. Uh, they they might like the the kind of pipelines and all that. And thinking about data in that way is also a, a healthier way to look at it, as in sheets. I think. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's very uh, limiting. Uh, so yeah, it's it, to me, it's like, okay, things that are, it's like presenting a three or four dimensional world in two dimensions, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, like flat, yeah, flat land. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, that's that's it. That, and I think people live in flat land that <laughs> you mentioned, yeah, probably don't know they live in flat land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's my... My talk about that. All right. Um, Thank you, Serge. Let's go to a co-stub and then Eric. Then after that, we'll jump into Greg's question. By the way, if you're in the room and you have a question, please do uh, let me know. Or if you want to contribute to a certain part of the discussion, it's not too late to raise your hand. If you're listening on LinkedIn and you got a question, please do let me know. Also, if you're listening on LinkedIn and you haven't already smashed a like, you should probably do that as well. Uh, uh, yeah, I just want to I just want to turn this question a little bit on its head, kind of partially for devil's advocate reasons, right? Are you trying to solve a problem that isn't your problem to solve, right? Like, think about it. Now, there are people who've been working with data with Excel spreadsheets for 20, 30 years, right? They're going through their careers and they've seen all the benefits that they need to see in their day-to-day -day lives. Is your job there to transform the whole business to getting it to using Python? Or, I mean, uh, is that a problem you necessarily need to solve right it, now? It's akin to asking, is it my responsibility to take the frog out of boiling water before he realizes that it's boiling? Uh, for my team, for my specific department, I'd argue yes. For the rest of my organization, absolutely not. Um, yeah. uh, right, but my, my, my point is like, do, do you think that just by doing it within your team and showing the results that over time, and this might be potentially over a few years, right? Yeah. Other parts of the organization would come along the story by seeing those wins. Potentially, but that that's I, I that's a prerogative that the rest of the organization has. One temporarily, I don't think I'll be here in three years. I, I can just I'll just freely admit that. But 
I do want to showcase the benefit of what can be done outside of Excel and with the uh, uh, benefits that, that everybody here sees day in and day out, um, because it really is an existential crisis. The, the industry needs to move. It just doesn't know how to move. Um, and I, I like to think that I can propose how it can move in a way that is beneficial to itself and to its clients. Um, because other organizations are doing this, our competitors are doing this. We just don't happen to see what exactly they're doing. And I, I'm in a position where I can see that. Um, but I, I just want my team to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Whether the, the organization decides to adopt our practices, that's, that's up to it. Um, but I, I don't want my own trajectory and my my standing to lose because of behavioral inertia and a close fidelity to excel like that's just that's just ridiculous um in my view so that like that that's the long-winded answer to the question yeah i mean like to to my mind it's it's very much in, in your case it sounds like that is kind of your job to make sure that, that pushes through uh, i think a lot of the time um i've fallen into this trap before where i've gotten so almost in a, on a high horse, right, to say, hey, this is the better way to do something, uh, that I waste a lot of time trying to convince people that it's a better way to do something and not enough time focusing on the job at hand. Uh, so that's the only reason I ask that question. No, no, and you're you're exactly right. Like, like, there's a principal agent problem that could develop here. What um, what I'm, I'm trying to eliminate that possibility by, I don't just say it, unfucking what's been fucked up for a long time <laughs> and so i am trying to anticipate what that problem could be and, and eliminate it before it becomes a problem thank you very much uh great comments costa thank you uh matt let's go to eric on this topic and then Serge. uh is your hand up as well or is that by accident if uh it's by accident we know. Uh, but okay. yeah all right cool uh, let's go to to Eric on this topic. Then after Eric, we will go to um, next question. So obviously, I don't have a ton to add on what everybody else has said. But so in a previous job, uh, pre data stuff, um, I was a I guess you could call me a kind of a process improvement leader, and my job was to pull together cross functional teams from different parts of the company to fix problems that needed to be fixed in like an intense, intensive, like uh, blitz, like to use a lean or six sigma term, right? It was a blitz. And so I did not know anything about the problems and I didn't even know what problems existed to start with. And my job, the big part of my job, even though I had some tools that could be used to fix things, I spent most of my time like sitting down with people who knew what the problems were asking them about the problems and they would just tell me what they didn't like. And it's like Paul Akers says, you know, fix what bugs you. And everybody has something that they don't like. And that's where you could start with stuff, but you don't know what those people don't like until they tell you what they don't like. And when you find that thing they don't like, or they tell you, you'll get all the input that you could possibly need um, for it. And, you know, maybe some people are comfortable or complacent or whatever, you know, um, adjective you want to use for that, but somebody somewhere will have a problem that can be solved and that is open to it, you know. And if nobody anywhere has a problem that needs to be solved, well, then fine, you know, you're, I guess you're off the hook. Um, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. And so it just kind of goes back to, I guess, what I said earlier about like thinking like a data scientist, just like ask an absurd number of questions because eventually you'll get an answer and that might give you a marching direction. Um, and something to do that will then allow you to meet a need that somebody really wants to have met and feel like you're all paddling in the same direction. Thank you very much, Matt. Lots of great uh, tips and advice for you there. Uh, this will be re-released on Sunday. So make sure you go back and listen to some of that stuff. Shout out to uh, Richard Smith, just joined us in the room. Also shout out to uh, uh, Ellen and Christine. If you guys got any questions, let me know. Uh, huge shout out to uh, Shantana. By the way, Shantana is hiring for a machine learning engineer intern. Um, so if you guys are interested in that, go visit her LinkedIn profile um, to find out more information. Let's go to Greg's question. Yeah, so uh, forgive me if you've already talked about this one, but I can't help but bring that um, what do you call Zillow conversation. Uh, here, um, 
So I hear so much, oh, it failed, blah, blah, blah. Let's blame, let's blame these folks, um, these data scientists, and we never really know what really happened. I saw, uh, um, I saw uh, an article saying that actually people using the, the tool, they were actually um, not trusting what the system recommended and kind of uh, changing the numbers, the, the sales record and the, the buy recommendations to meet their quota. Well, while we're sitting here not knowing uh, the true story, what, what would you have done differently as a data scientist to, to make this work, to make it more of a success story than what it is today? I'm going to go ahead and uh, shout out Vin for this one because uh, his, his article, Zillow, just gave you a look at machine learning's future. Is I know. I, I like that. I like that. That's why I brought it up. So I want to hear yeah. Vin. Yeah. For yeah, sure. Let's hear, let's hear from anybody Vin, else. Yeah. Uh, he also made it to the uh, front page of Hacker News with that with that post. Uh, so that's awesome. Uh, Vin, yeah, let's, let's hear from you on this. Uh, it, it's interesting. And I think I think everybody's kind of tired of hearing my post about Zillow. So I'm not going to wax on too much because I think legit everybody's seen it. Everybody's seen opinions on it. I think the comments that I got on Hacker News are potentially more entertaining than the post itself. And they're informative because you hear, and this is the, the part that I think hasn't been covered enough. You hear this dichotomy in data science now between what I'm starting to call legacy data science and sort of this new generation of data scientists who are looking at data science as a value generator and a revenue generator. But they're also cautioning that, okay, you're going to start booking cash on this. It has to be more bulletproof, not obviously bulletproof, but it has to be more bulletproof than it used to be in the past. And I don't think we're doing a great job advertising when we hit that barrier between this has a whole lot of safety nets and this, you know, these models have people or processes that are protecting it from itself because models fail. And I don't think we're doing a good, good job of advertising when those get taken away. And when we start really relying on models for revenue and not just like the models supporting a feature or enabling something, you know, when it's a frontline feature, like Microsoft right now has monetized GPT-3 in three different ways. And all of them are the literal hardest ways possible to monetize the model. And they've, they've done the rigorous work necessary to create a product that won't bite them. And they're doing things like Copilot, where they're trialing it and figuring out, you know, where all the rough edges are before they start staking revenue on top of it. They're even selling access to the model itself to retrain it. And so they're doing it really intelligently. And so you can, with large scale models, make money. If your data scientists understand that fuzzy line between we've got safety nets and those will protect us. And the other side of that line is we are taking these safety nets away. This has to work a whole lot more reliably. And there's no one in the C-suite who understands how to ask the kind of questions necessary to keep them from really just getting obliterated from a business model standpoint, walking into a setup to fail. And so I think that's the piece that we're missing is sort of that the branching off of data science where the legacy side of the field won't support revenue the way companies expect it to. And the newer side of the field, the more rigorous, the more scientifically supported side of the field it feels like we're not doing a great job of saying, look, this is when we need to start doing hard science, not just analytics anymore. And we're not doing a great job of advertising to senior leadership. Hey, if we don't, this fails. You don't make money, your investors bail. And you know, we can almost point directly at Zillow and go, yeah, that happens. So if you don't spend the money, if you don't invest the time, that happens. And here's, you know, here's a, a better description of how this is going to work and how we can support it. And so I think, you know, you can blame data scientists to a point, but you also have to ask the C-suite to be accountable, to know enough about data science or have somebody in the C-suite, have somebody in the strategy planning process, have someone at the leadership level who understands data science. If you're going to create a business model that is completely based on it, uh, 
that, that would be like having somebody in charge of Microsoft that didn't understand technology in any way, shape or form. It just, I mean, sure, maybe, but it sounds like a bad idea to me. If you're running like a data science organization, like you need to put yourself in a position where you're not fragile to volatility, right? You need to, you need to put yourself in a position where you have more to gain than to lose. So you get more upside than downside, right? Uh, so you put yourself in a position which requires you to have a ton of information for you to be successful. It's a lot of asymmetry, right? You can't capitalize on that asymmetry. The future is complex. What did Yogi, was it Babe Ruth or Yogi Bear that says uh, making predictions is hard, especially about the future, right? So maybe buying houses outright would not have been the right move. Maybe the right move would have been buying options to buy houses, right? Uh, I'm sure an options market exists for that. Um, but yeah, I think anytime you're using data science to make or machine learning to make huge decisions like this, this is not the same thing as object detection, right? This is not the same thing as trying to say hot dog, not hot dog. This is a completely different use case of, of machine learning. And in this particular domain, you need more information, right? Uh, so make decisions where you need less information to be successful. That's that's what I would do differently if I was a, a data scientist. I'd love to hear from from Serge on on this if you got any uh, insight or anybody else for that matter. Before that wants before to, uh, before, Sir, before Serge, uh, real quick. So if if it's true that the people using these models weren't trusting it, it makes any model ever fragile too, right? So if they don't trust uh, uh, what you've put together as a data scientist, uh, especially if it's based on probabilistic, you know. Uh, inferences. So in this case, they're going to go with their gut feeling. Oh, there's no way this house is worth that much. We can purchase it for a little bit lower or a little bit higher, blah, blah, blah. Let me tinker with it and not trust the system. That's like a recipe for failure too. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, blame the data scientists, but did you do enough to promote, you know, trust between the ones who are data scientists and the ones who would be using the tools that the data scientists would build? So I think it's a mixture of a lot of things that made this thing fail. Yeah, uh, just jumping jumping on yeah. top of that, there's a behavioral component. And I talked about that a little bit in my article. And this is the part that I think many, many business models are going to fail around is they pretend that people are rational actors and they're not. So if you don't have a behavioral model supporting your, your inference, then you're almost kind of ignoring one dimension of the problem. And Greg just brought up the internal side, which I didn't even bring up, which is the, it's not just your customers. It's the people inside where we're trying to short circuit this. You almost need like another behavioral model to prevent your people from doing all the crazy and stupid things that people who think they're yeah. smarter than they are do. Yeah. Almost like it needs to a bit of, responsibility on the data science team to be like uh you know sure we did well on our training set sure we did well on the testing data uh, but is this an actual good thing for us to try to do like does this does this project make sense uh should we not have invested that much money like should we have maybe used just a small proportion of uh of capital to test this at least like you know one yeah. of my you know colleagues drew has this great saying i absolutely love it he's like there's no such thing as the test set the test set is the real real world uh so yeah anyways i'll just leave it at that coast up go for it uh and then after coast up if serge wants to jump in uh yeah uh, yeah yeah uh i think you hit you hit the nail on the head there Harpreet. um the question is how much um how much power do you give how much ownership do you give a data science team uh, to give them the ability to turn around and give senior management that feedback saying, hey, I don't think we're using this model for the right reasons within this business, right? Now, that might be, in, in Zillow's case, potentially, uh, we're not using this model to, uh, you know, to adequately cover the domain that we need to cover to make the right business decisions. It, it could be a moral compass, right? Like one of the things that attracted me to the role I'm at right now is that the company set up like a, a bit of like an advisory committee effectively. And it's effectively a voice for the machine learning engineers and the data scientists to turn around and say, Hey guys, I don't think we're quite going about this the right way. And having that two way feedback, I think is really important. So it's really a cultural thing. Well, there could be a cultural solution to a lot of these problems, I think. 
Um, Go for it, Serge. Yeah, I think there's also a technical solution along the lines of what Harpreet said. Yeah, I think it's it's all about experimenting. You you don't go full on and and test it completely. You take a sample size on different markets, see how it behaves. You know, you also uh, you have to be skeptic and see okay and realize that your your models have a feedback loop and they impact the market and there's people tricking it. So, I mean, you, it, it all, I think there's a lot of techniques that have been long existed that are under leveraged, you know, things like, you know, sensitivity analysis, AB testing, you know, uh, these can be applied to every field. And I think these, you know, whether it was the data scientist, I don't know the particulars of the case or management, but someone dropped the ball on that. Thanks so much. Anybody else want to, to, to jump in on, on this? Uh, I got a question coming in from LinkedIn from, from Ben Taylor. We can go to that question uh, next if, if any, nobody else has anything to, to say here. Thank you for your answers, guys. I just love that we're talking about this economics and about rationality because, of course, we all know that we underestimate uh, the errors and we overestimate how we know more about a local market, right? And to what Serge was saying, you just get greedy because you haven't probably tested your market and got enough sample size and enough data over a long enough period of time. Uh, question <laughs> coming in from Ben Taylor. Uh, what is the future of AI explainability? What new tools do you think will be available? Uh, so Great question. I wish uh, Dennis Rothman was here to, uh, to help with that. Uh, go for it, Greg. Well, my, my opinion is that explainability will never be one of those, oh, um, I'm going to have access to what's under the hood, right? So GPT-3, who's going to know what's happening with those billions of parameters, right? It's more of a rise of observability. Um, whether it's ML or data observability uh, that can tell you what changes have happened in the input data and what are the results uh, at the output and kind of uh, drawing the map of all of that exploration and flagging you uh, to explain to you why this output is changing based on some influences that are happening to the, to the input. Uh, to me, explainability is about trying different things with your model and understanding what that model does based on what you feed into it. It's not necessarily understanding what's happening inside that black box. Uh, if you want to be a core engineer, uh, you can go in the, ahead and, and, and understand it and build something like it and, 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 and uh, deep dive into it. But not everybody will want to be there, but everybody wants to have some sort of uh, understanding from explainability standpoint. So the future is around the rise of observability. That's uh, uh, tools that um, allows observability at scale uh, because you're gonna have hundreds of uh, deployed models out there. Uh, you want some sort of scalable automation to uh, help you uh, trigger uh, retraining uh, fast uh, and, and redeploying fast because you don't have time to open each hood to understand what's happening. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, let's go to, we'll go to uh, Serge after this, then then Vin after that, and then Shantan, if you're around, I'd love to hear from you because we talked about this a little bit on the, uh, uh, that one time you are on my podcast. But I mean, uh, does it make sense to drill this further down when we talk about, okay, explainability, like, does that mean we need to answer the question, okay, why did this model make this prediction? How did the model make this prediction? And then what does this prediction imply? Like, are those all the same questions? I'm not sure that's just, something that's going uh, around in my head, but Serge, go for it. And after Serge, uh, Vin, and Shantan, if you're around, I'd love to hear from you on this. Well, to expand what Greg said, yeah, I think uh, observability is important. I, um, also, yeah, of course, uh, drift, catching drift, um, human in the loop. I think uh, for not so much, not only for inference, but also for training. Uh, right now it's, you know, Pretty manual, but I think uh, when AutoML takes its course, you have to always have human in the loop. And that's where all these tools, 
you know, to give a constant feedback to the, the, the machine learning practitioner so that things are always, you know, guardrails are placed so that it doesn't do any crazy, anything crazy. And as you realize what are the weak spots of the model, you place more guardrails in place because you, you, you understand that, you know, there's, a, you know, data distributions and there's things that the model cannot learn because they don't exist, you know, in the data. They're not represented there. So um, I think that's uh, where it's heading in that aspect. Also, there's new tools being established with causal ML, uh, things that leverage also counterfactuals. I think that that will lead the way to a lot of exciting opportunities. Speaking of causal uh, inference and counterfactuals, um, be sure to tune into the episode that I am releasing. I think it is December the 3rd or December the 10th with uh, Dana McKenzie, co-author of the Book of Why. Uh, I think you guys will enjoy that conversation. Uh, Vin, uh, let's hear from you on this. Anybody else wants to jump in, uh, please let me know. If anybody else has a, a question, uh, let me know because I think we'll begin to wrap it up after uh, this round of discussion. Yeah, when you said Book of Why and Calls Inference the Mixtape, get used to it. That's where we're going. Like that's the, it's not a new tool. It's a sort of new tool and sort of new applications for it. But the more I look at the regulatory frameworks that are coming out, and I think this is where when we talk about explainable AI and reliability, robustness, I think we're going to have a couple of drivers. One is adversarial attacks. And eventually you're going to see a significant enough model exploit happen publicly. And that's going to be another, like I'm going to, get another 50,000 views on, on my sub stack for that one. It's going to be another Zillow type event where someone exploits a model publicly with serious financial consequences. And that's going to be one driver that pushes you towards causal. And the other one's going to be regulatory because the regulators don't understand what they're regulating. So they're over-regulating the heck out of it. They're asking questions that there's just no real way to answer unless you go down a complex rabbit hole that involves some causal uh, and I don't know which uh, theory of the case is going to end up winning, but at some point we're going to have to start incorporating more hard science and that's going to be causal inference or causal modeling mechanisms of some sort. We we have to, those two drivers are going to be, it's, it's unavoidable. Thanks so much. Uh, anybody else want to jump? Oh, Shantan is around. Shantan, do you want to uh, jump in here? Uh, just to, in case you didn't hear the, the question, Vin was asking, what's the future of AI? Not Vin, uh, Ben was asking, what's the future of AI explainability? What new tools do you think will be available? Yeah, no, I, I heard the discussion. Um, I'll, I'll mention two things. One is that uh, you know, I still think that there is a lot of value in explainable shallow models um, rather than running to deep models for everything. Having said that, of course, certain fields just don't lend themselves to um, making a lot of progress without deep neural networks. Uh, so that's one. The second is, uh, you know, folks have mentioned uh, drift, uh, you know, model drift, I, I think specifically. Um, I think what's gonna be really important is data governance as well. Um, so, you know, not, not thinking about particular tools, but uh, part of this ML ops, ML orchestration pipeline has to be data governance, data lineage, data sanity checks. And that uh, will at least, I mean, it will at least uh, help prevent like things going terribly wrong. Um, and and, and so it's sort of the best case scenario, it can be, you know, if, if you're able to sort of um, understand, really understand your data, um, then you can do a lot of this, um, you know, you can do a lot of explaining from the data. You don't re really have to rely on the model too much. I definitely agree with that entire data lineage, data, you know, governance, management, all that stuff. At the end of the day, like if we're building models, we're just consumers of data, we're like downstream users of data having all that upstream uh, processes in place is critical anybody else want to jump in here uh any questions any last minute questions any last minute comments let me know so, is ben satisfied with the answers uh 
Ben, hopefully you're satisfied. I don't see him on the uh, on the uh, comment section on LinkedIn, but I do know that he is, um, I think he's headed to the airport or maybe even sitting at the airport right now. Um, so Ben, hopefully that was uh, interesting to you. Um, so let us know. Come back next week. Talk about it. Uh, no other questions from anyone? Uh, well, let's wrap it up, guys. Uh, thanks so much for joining. Shout out to uh, everybody that came through. Uh, Christine, Jude in the audience. Saw you guys here. Hopefully you guys come back next week. Let me know if you got questions. Uh, so episode that released just today, George Farrakhan, data governance on the heels of what Shant and I just said. Uh, data governance is important. Well, it's a good thing I got an episode that we talk about data governance. So tune into that. Uh, you can also listen to the episode I did with Shant and I as well. Uh, so search for that. Um, next couple of weeks, a lot of interesting episodes coming out. Uh, next week is with Steve Cardinale. Talk about how to turn ideas into gold. Then after that, uh, Karush Alizada. Uh, he has the Philosophy Data Pro Project, which is taking NLP, combining with philosophy. He's got this really interesting web app. Um, we have a good conversation there. Uh, Greg, I see you're unmuted. Any last minute questions or comments? Go for it. That's, uh, nope. that's about it. So always good to be here. Awesome, man. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you for hanging out. Hope to see you guys next week. And hopefully you guys stay safe, stay warm. Like I mentioned, got like three feet of snow today out here in Winnipeg. It is uh, wild. And I got to go try to get groceries right now. Hopefully I can stay on the road. Guys, take care. Have a good rest of the evening, afternoon, whatever it is. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.